0: Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. Wherever you're listening from today, thanks for joining us. Today's show will open with some recent headlines before going into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law Dean Karen Bravo, We've had a newsy couple of weeks, so let's get started. Today's April 20th, 2022, and these are your headlines. First, some recent breaking news regarding leadership changes at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Austin Parrish, Dean of IU Maurer, is stepping down from the Bloomington Institution to become Dean of the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Parrish became Dean of IU Maurer in 2014. He arrived in Bloomington from Southwestern Law School in Los Angeles, where he had been serving as interim dean and CEO. During his time in Indiana, Parrish made a lasting impact on the law school as well as the wider legal profession. He is credited with building on IU Maurer's success by expanding and creating new programs, launching an ambitious strategic plan, overseeing an accreditation review, and completing a $60 million capital campaign. He also served on the Indiana Supreme Court Study Commission on the Future of the Indiana Bar Examination, which recommended that the state adopt the uniform bar exam. Parrish said this transition is a rare opportunity where his professional and personal life aligned, and it is difficult to leave all his friends in Bloomington. Read more about this story in the most recent edition of The Indiana Lawyer, as well as on theindianalawyer.com. we will also be sure to keep you updated as the search for the next dean of IU Maurer begins. Next, let's move to some lawsuit news. Family members of five victims who were killed during a mass shooting at the Indianapolis FedEx Ground Facility last year have filed a lawsuit in federal court seeking justice for their loved ones. On April 11th, days before the one-year anniversary of the shooting, a lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana, naming FedEx Corporation, FedEx Ground Package System, Inc., Federal Express Corporation, FedEx Corporate Services, Inc., and Securitas Security Services, USA, as defendants. The lawsuit is in response to the April 15, 2021 massacre when 19-year-old Brandon Scott Hole opened fire and killed eight FedEx ground employees before taking his own life. Indianapolis attorney Daniel Chamberlain of Cohen & Milad LLC and Georgia attorney Melvin Hewitt of Eisenberg & Hewitt, PC, are representing the families. The families allege in the complaint that the defendants failed to exercise ordinary care in the carrying out of their respective duties on and prior to the day of the shooting. They also claim that Securitas, one of the world's largest private security providers, provided unarmed security for the facility. The complaint alleges the defendant's singular and combined negligence and gross negligence was the direct and proximate cause and result of the severe injuries and ultimate death of the eight victims and five workers injured in the shooting. During a press conference, Chamberlain said the shooting, quote, was not only preventable, but these types of situations cannot continue in the U.S., let alone in the state of Indiana. This is one of the worst mass shootings and frankly unnecessary, end quote. Plaintiffs in the suit are seeking general and special damages, attorney fees and costs, as well as a jury trial. We'll be sure to keep you updated as the lawsuit unfolds. Now for some court news. The only case on the Indiana Supreme Court's docket for this month is underway. On April 7th, the justices, as Iowa senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl described it, looked closely at the state's constitution, peppered attorneys with questions, and at times, appeared skeptical of the answers during an hour-long oral argument as the justices waded into the statehouse feud over who has authority to call the Indiana legislature into special session. In a packed Indiana Supreme Court courtroom, all five justices heard oral arguments in Holcomb v. Bray, Richard Blakelock, Managing Partner at Lewis Wagner LLP, represented the governor. Indiana Solicitor General Thomas M. Fisher represented the legislature. The Supreme Court gave each side two minutes before it started asking questions. The governor and legislature are feuding over the constitutionality of House Enrolled Act 1123. During the oral arguments, justices queried over whether the governor has standing to bring the lawsuit, and they asked what harm the governor suffered by the legislature having the ability to call itself into special session. A key point of contention between the governor and the legislature are the amendments made to the state's constitution in 1970 and 1984, which gave the General Assembly the authority over the length and frequency of its sessions. Chief Justice Loretta Rush and Justice Mark Massa queried Blakelock over whether word frequency in the amendments gave the legislature the ability to call a special session whenever it wanted. Blakelock responded by asserting the court had to look at the context in which the amendments were crafted. Blakelock maintained the legislature knew the language had explicitly given the authority to call a special session. Again, he highlighted the context that the General Assembly did not enact the 1967 provision when it had the chance, and that media stories and legislative reports do not indicate the word frequency was made to include special sessions. Fisher said that the governor has the ability to convene the legislature when it's not in session, and the General Assembly has the authority to set and fix by law its length and frequency of sessions, and when to commence its session is different. At the end of the oral arguments, Rush complimented Lock and Fisher and their legal teams. The Chief Justice said, quote, Counsel on behalf of my colleagues on the court, outstanding. Outstanding advocacy, outstanding briefing. For the young attorneys in here, this is how it should be done. End quote. We've been on this story since day one and will continue to provide updates as they happen. Next, Isle reporter Katie Stancombe has an update on an issue impacting virtually every Hoosier community.
1: New data from the Journal of the American Medical Association revealed that overdose deaths have skyrocketed among teens in recent years. The driving factor? An increase in drugs laced with fentanyl. Since 2010, substance use remained virtually unchanged among American youth but the numbers blew sky high in 2019 when teen overdose mortality rates increased by 94%, according to JAMA. Deaths rose by another 20% from 2020 to 2021. The JAMA report found that fentanyl was involved in 77.14% of teen overdose deaths. Indiana collectively saw a 67% increase in overdose deaths from ages 15 to 24 last year, compared to a 49% increase nationally, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention data. The data found that fentanyl was present in 87% of Hoosier overdose deaths statewide. Claire Fidian green president and CEO of the Richard M. Fairbanks Foundation, said she's seen a similar increase in fatal drug overdose deaths among Hoosier teens during the pandemic. What's frightening is that fentanyl, which appears to be driving the bulk of the overdose deaths, can be in so many other drugs. So a young person may think, well, it's okay if I have marijuana, but if it's laced with
2: fentanyl, then that's not the case.
1: Indianapolis attorney Jonathan Knoll of Cohen & Milad said his firm is one of many who have filed suits on behalf of Indiana cities seeking damages to abate the opioid crisis. A whirlwind of lawsuits and settlements are swirling around the country as states and cities seek to hold opioid developers and distributors accountable for the roles they played in the nation's opioid crisis. The Hoosier state could receive an estimated $507 million from a $26 billion payout from major opioid distributors, Cardinal Health, McKesson, and amerisource Virgin, as well as drug maker Johnson & Johnson, from a nationwide effort to settle suits filed in response to the opioid crisis.
0: The nature of those claims are seeking to hold the manufacturers of prescription opioids, the distributors of prescription opioids, and what we call dispensers of prescription opioids accountable for the harm they've caused in creating the opioid crisis across the country. And that harm has certainly been felt here in Indiana.
1: We'll keep you updated on how those suits unfold. Back to you, Jordan.
0: Thanks, Katie. Moving to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, we have an update on a case we've been following for some time now. Three of the four women who accused former Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill of groping them Cannot sue the state under Title VII claims, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled, finding the legislative staffers were employed by the Indiana House and Senate, not the state itself. Judge Frank Easterbrook wrote for the unanimous appellate panel on April 6th. The legal battle between Hill and the four women, former state rep Mara Candelaria Reardon and former Indiana legislative staffers Gabrielle McLemore-Brock, Nikki De Silva, and Samantha Lozano dates back to March 2018 when Hill and the women all attended an end-of-session legislative party in Indianapolis. In the months following the party, allegations became public that Hill had drunkenly groped the women, although he has consistently denied wrongdoing in the intervening years. Addressing the jurisdictional question first, the Seventh Circuit determined it could consider the appeal on its merits. However, the women were not successful when the Seventh Circuit turned to the merits. Ultimately, the appellate court declined to revisit v. Chicago Board of Education or Holman v. Indiana finding instead that the entity with hiring and firing authority is the right defendant for Title VII claims. In arguing the state was their employer, the women said the Indiana House and Senate had no control over Hill and thus could not protect them from discrimination by him. But the legislature could impeach Hill, Easterbrook noted, and a senior legislative officer could have kicked him out of the March 2018 party. As for the other two branches of state government, the Seventh Circuit know the Indiana Attorney General is not answerable to the governor, while the Supreme Court could do little on its own beyond suspending Hill's law license. In addition to the federal lawsuit, all four women are also suing Hill in state court. That case is set for a jury trial in September. Staying in the Seventh Circuit, President Joe Biden has tapped the newest judge to fill a vacancy on that bench. Judge John Z. Lee of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois has been nominated by the Biden administration to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and, if confirmed will be the first Asian-American judge to serve on that bench. Lee would fill the seat held by Judge Diane Wood, who announced she is taking senior status back in December. A 1989 magna cum laude graduate from Harvard College and 1992 cum laude graduate from Harvard Law School, Lee was confirmed to the Northern Illinois District Court in 2012. He was the first Korean-American to ever serve as an Article III federal judge in the Northern Illinois District. Lee began his legal career serving in the Environmental and Natural Resources Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. He then moved into private practice, working as an associate at Mayor Brown, and Grippo and Eldon. Joining Freeborn and Peters in Chicago in 1999, Lee became a partner in just two short years, the quickest descent to partnership in the history of the firm. Before he became a judge, Lee served as a board president of the Coordinated Advice and Referral Program for Legal Services, a legal aid agency that provides legal advice and referrals to neighbors in underserved communities in Cook County, Illinois. Also, he served as president of the Asian Human Services of Chicago, a social services organization serving immigrant communities. Wrapping up, I wanted to share some info about a story we've been working on for the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. Next issue's focus section will feature in-house counsel, and IOL senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl is working on a story that touches on multiple sides of the profession. In 2021, in-house legal departments saw their external legal expenditures nearly double to $14.5 million from $7.9 million in 2020. Certainly, the price of consumable goods has skyrocketed and law firms have been hiking their fees as their workloads have become heavier, so legal spend is also increasing. How much are corporate counsels paying for outside legal help? How are they controlling costs? And what is the long-term impact of these top dollar rates? Be sure to pick up the April 27th Indiana Lawyer to learn more. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit theindianalawyer.com to learn more about these stories or anything else that's happening in the Indiana legal community. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear our conversation with IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law Dean Karen Bravo. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law Dean and Gerald L. Pepko Professor of Law Karen Bravo with us today via Zoom. Dean Bravo, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much, Jordan.
0: As some background, Dean Bravo was appointed to her current position with the law school on July first, 2020, as a result of a national search. However, she has been on the faculty at IU McKinney since 2004, teaching international law, international trade law, and business courses. Her other administrative appointments at the law school include Associate Dean for Graduate Studies and Vice Dean. Bravo received her JD in 1997 from Columbia University School of Law and LLM at New York University School of Law in 2004. After graduating from Columbia, Bravo worked in corporate law with international firms in New York. Bravo is the 13th person to lead the law school since it became affiliated with IU in 1944 and is also the first person of color and the second woman to be named Dean. So when speaking uh, to leaders such as yourself, I often like to open with this question. Um, why did you decide to pursue law as a career? And was there a moment uh, when you knew this was the career path that you wanted to take?
2: Uh, very good question. And perhaps I should give some additional background as well for your, uh, your listeners. So some of your listeners will be familiar with the fact that I am a first generation immigrant to the United States. I came to the US as a college graduate or university graduate, we would say, from Jamaica. Went to New York. My studies had been in languages, so I don't ask me to speak them, but I had studied French, Spanish, and German, a classic liberal arts education with history and sociology mixed in and then coming to the U.S. was quite a learning experience for me and I came to see the centrality of law uh, to U.S. life and became more interested in this. So I was working at a law firm in a support capacity and decided uh, I was going to try and do the LSAT. I became a little bit uh, I guess overconfident and thought well I'm as smart as these lawyers that I'm working around. and So did the LSAT and went into the legal field and just loved it. Um, My passion for languages also included my passion for history and law is just a perfect field of study for someone who wants more of the context. You want the history, you want social uh, policies, you want some political themes. And law is just a wonderful area of study to give you that.
0: When you took over, dean in July 2020, uh, we were still in the early stages of the pandemic. Um, looking back now, how do you feel the law school adapted to those challenges in the beginning? And, and how did COVID change your plans?
2: Uh, very good question. So how did we adapt? I think we adapted remarkably well, but I would say I think we all did. This was a national local, global efforts. So the law school specifically, we could see this coming as we headed into spring break. And at that time, it it may be difficult to recall, but we thought within a few weeks, (laughs) this will be over. So we extended, or we and the university expended spring break for an additional week thinking, okay. Then we would be able to return. It quickly became clear that we would not, none of us would be returning, and that we wanted to and needed to enable our students to complete uh, their studies and to do that by Zoom. And of course, we all became acquainted with Zoom. I think we reacted remarkably well. We were, that is, the law school leadership then under Dean Klein, and I was working with Dean Klein and Dean Pitts. Uh, meeting with um, leaders on campus. Uh, They were meeting with leaders at the university and we were also communicating with law schools around the country as to what they were doing. And so we took on many of the challenges that they did and uh, responded in similar ways and uh, were assisted by the fact that the ABA as well allowed schools to have waivers with respect to the number of online credits that a JD student is able to have.
0: Uh, McKinney has six research centers and programs. Um, Why are they important to the law school in continuing its growth?
2: Great question. And it's important because it helps focus. uh, Well, first enhances and um, uh, creates a, a mechanism to showcase faculty work. So faculty uh, expertise in areas such as health law, areas such as international law, criminal law, these centers are able to bring us together as faculty with that expertise. We then are able to share that expertise with our students. And it also provides for students an um, ability to work within those specific areas when they develop that interest either before coming to law school or in law school, uh, but as well to figure out, I can see this array of courses and I can then, if I want to study in this area, I can match these courses together and specify and prepare myself for practice within that particular realm. So I'll, I'll highlight our health law um, uh, center, uh, the Hall Center, and the fact that uh, under the director of, direction of uh, Nick Terry and his predecessor, the uh, research that's done by that center and the array of teaching uh, courses, I think would match any uh, law school in the country.
0: Absolutely. Um, Is the law school and the student body becoming more diverse, and and if so, how so?
2: Great question as well. I would say yes, it's becoming more diverse, but more slowly than um, the population in general. How is it doing so? We have always sought, at least all the time that I've been at the law school, to recruit diverse students. We want the student body to reflect the population of Indiana. And we have a particular um, um, responsibility because we are here in Indianapolis, which is perhaps the most diverse uh, community in the state of Indiana. So that goal to reflect that population is one that we really cherish and, and want to implement. That means all of the diversity uh, both racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, um, the rural versus uh, city uh, divide, um, veterans, and uh, their whole categories, um, folks with disabilities. Now, they, we have maintained the diversity of our student body, but we do have goals to continue to enhance that in order to reflect our population. I think you've probably seen conversations, whether in popular media or elsewhere, where there's concern that the legal profession will lose its legitimacy for those who encounter it. If when they encounter law, legal uh, and court officials and judges and lawyers, they don't see themselves, and so it uh, becomes a profession apart. And uh, part of our role as a law school is to make sure that we, we fulfill that obligation to the profession, but also to our city.
0: Another colleague of yours, uh, Austin Parrish, former dean of IU Maurer School of Law, uh, recently announced he's moving back to California to become dean at UC Irvine School of Law. Um, how much interlap is there between IU McKinney and Maurer, IU Maurer, and, and what are your thoughts on Austin's departure?
2: all right great questions again so there is not significant overlap because we're two independent law schools and there are different models of state schools with more than one law school so i would point to for example the california model where there are independent schools where they what there is though are informal relationships among faculty members i think you're familiar with uh, or maybe the fact that austin and i are graduates from the same class at Columbia. So we have had interactions. We've had projects that we've worked on. In fact, probably in the first few months of my deanship, we were appointed to co-chair a committee um, uh, for Indiana University. So the relationships are informal students. I think students just had a was it a softball game? I forget what kind of game, some kind of competitive game uh, between the two student bodies. Uh, so those are the kinds of relationships. With respect to Austin's uh, move to California, um, I congratulate him because he is uh, going on the next step of his journey. I think he's done a wonderful job at uh, Mauer since his appointment there. And I know that the faculty there, the students, the alums, appreciate all that he's done. And I think, you know, as with all of us thinking about the next challenge, he's at that point, clearly, um, where uh, the next challenge beckoned, and UC Irvine is a wonderful school. I'm sure he will do well.
0: Uh, What do you see as some of the biggest challenges to law schools today?
2: I think reading what the future will be. So we've come through the pandemic. We have operated under ABA waiver during the times where we had to be intensely virtual. Although I will say that IU McKinney, other than the last few months of the spring 2020 semester, we were always hybrid. We always offered a significant number of in-person classes. The question then is we have leapfrogged or accelerated the use of technology in law schools, particularly with respect to the delivery of our classes. How do we harness that um, within the normal operations as the pandemic becomes endemic? Uh, Do we have more hybrid classes? Do we have classes whereby students from I.U. McKinney are sitting here in Indianapolis negotiating with students in Taiwan, which we actually had last semester under the leadership of Cynthia Adams and one of our alums, Mark Shope, so that we are able to harness that transnational negotiation uh, experience for them with real counterparts in another country. Another issue is uh, whether or not the ABA or regulators will, as a permanent matter, increase the number or percentage of uh, online credits that we are able to offer as law schools writ large. And so that remains to be seen. I know that that is under discussion. So that's a big challenge as to what will the law school look like. I know that in uh, outside academia, the move to remote work, for example, is something that employers are negotiating? Is there something about education itself, at least in some parts of education, where you preserve the in-person? And I think some of our listeners would think there's something about the relationship building and the networking and the constructing of the professional self uh, in law schools that you know, it it calls for that in person. So that's one thing. Another challenge is how do we meet the challenge of the changing demographics in our country? We already alluded to the legitimacy question and the post uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, awakening of a larger percentage of the population to the inequities uh, that exist in our country We want to make sure that we are contributing to leadership and knowledge uh, that understands the challenges that we face, challenges that we have uh, inherited, right, Uh, that uh, we can address in the interest of democracy, equity, and and opportunity. So those are big challenges uh, for us. Coming down the road, uh, I was speaking about higher ed writ large the uh, one of the challenges and I'll say for Indiana is the loss of students between uh, high school and college so that we are seeing a decreasing number of um, high school graduates in Indiana move on to college. So if there's smaller number of college graduates, the work for workforce preparation will be impacted, but also the number of graduates who would be interested in going to law school, medical school, dental school, nursing. And so for our population, there is a a challenge regarding the status of education. Why should you be educated? Why get a college degree and why become a professional? So those are uh, challenges that we have to work with our counterparts in other schools and in the undergrad because we as a society, we're all in this together.
0: What are some initiatives and or uh, programs in the law school that might not get a lot of attention, but you feel like are making a big impact?
2: Well, some are getting uh, a lot of attention, but I'll maybe talk about uh, our externships writ large. So you may have heard about some of our externships and some of our clinical opportunities. Uh, For example, Professor Fran Quigley and his students who have been so active uh, with respect to the evictions crisis, working in small claims courts to to, um, protect the um, tenants who are facing eviction. So those are the clinical offerings. But then, because IU McKinney is situated here in the city of Indianapolis, we're uniquely positioned as its sole law school to offer to our students externship opportunities where a student may decide uh, in the first semester of their second year, I would like to do an externship with the NCAA. And then I'd like to do an externship with um, uh, the health, uh, in the health field. And then I might want to do an externship in the corporate law field. And so just the opportunity to get your feet wet to immediately begin to get that practical experience that puts the flesh on the theory, right? So you're learning the theory within the classroom and you can immediately get that um, real ingrained knowledge and practice. And so I would say that our Uh, externship program writ large is something that perhaps doesn't get as much um, uh, publicity because it's embedded in so many different areas of our school. So you could go through the health law program or IP or international and just get different kinds of of practical experience. So our strength in that area is something that I want to talk about. And I want to also hold up my colleague, Professor Carrie Hagan, who, who leads that effort.
0: Why should alumni be excited about the future of the law school? What are some things they can look forward to in the future?
2: They can look forward to me being out and about much more than I have been able to in the past. So we've started having uh, outreach. I was in DC just this past week. and met with a wonderful group of alums. Uh, we'll be going to other sites within Indiana. I think Evansville and Fort Wayne are on the uh, agenda and there i will talk about the ways in which we are working to enhance students outcomes our our alums are passionate in their commitment and dedication to our law school particularly uh, the place that it uh, the, the role that it plays in providing opportunity and access to the profession i, I speak in particular about the uh, evening program where individuals who are working are able to um, uh, come to law school and become part of the profession. So, uh, alums who have had this opportunity to have their lives transform also are passionate about seeing that transformation, participating in that transformation uh, of our students. So, we're going to welcome them back in to be able to do things that they've always done, giving their their, uh, expertise and time uh, and treasure, as they say, with doing mock interviews for students, being connected to students, and seeing how we as McKinney are able to transform ourselves for the future. We've been going through a strategic planning process whereby we consulted with our alums, our students, faculty, staff, to... um, find our priorities. Who are we going to be in the future? And I think it's very important that we go through that process.
0: Absolutely. That will wrap up this week's episode. Thanks again to IU McKinney School of Law Dean Karen Bravo for joining us on this week's podcast. As always, you can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast via your favorite streaming services or on theindianalawyer.com.